Welcome to Big Smoke Podcast. I am your host, John Cribbs, and unfortunately, Chris Funderburg is on medical leave, but we have in his place uh, the creator of Pinland Empire, co-host of the Zebras in America podcast and Pink Smoke Third Mike, Mr. Marcus Penn. How you doing, Hello. Marcus? I'm doing good. I'm doing great, actually. Thank you for uh, thank you for filling in. Um, not only are you, you know, obviously a wonderful guest to have on on any occasion, but I wanted to talk a little Abel Farrar, and I know that you have been around the bend a few times with him, and you have demonstrated that by appearing on the Wrong Reel episode with Chris, going through his whole filmography. That's an excellent episode. I just re-listened to it. Thanks. And then, yeah. you know, we did, a, Scott and I did an episode with Bradley um, about New Rose Hotel on his podcast. Um, and I literally, literally minutes ago, just stopped recording an episode of my own podcast where we, it turned, we got in, we weren't supposed to, but then we got into Tommaso. So I'm just, I'm, I'm coming off of talking about a movie that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so you got Abel on the brain. You're all set to talk about it. And I, I kind of always do. And I, I think why I wanted to be on this, why I'm glad you asked me to be on this episode is like, this is like a period that really fascinates me because um, there's just like, there's a lot of movie. He's always been active, but a lot of his stuff hasn't been like so readily seen. And now only recently has he kind of got back into that. Not where he was before, but... Abel Farrar is just, I guess what I'm trying to say, Abel Farrar is the kind of guy where, like, if you're going to tackle him, do it in sections. So I like how you set up, you know, how we're going to do it. And all, yeah, he's yeah. got a huge filmography. We're, getting, we're coming up on almost, you know, like, 50 years. So you can't just do that in, like, one podcast episode, you know? Yeah, well, it's definitely something that I want to get into. But before we do that, let us also introduce our very special guest. Yeah. Um, writer and montage conductor, excellent editor of fantastic videos um, that have appeared on Twitter, uh, longtime internet friend, but first time guest, Mr. John Frankensteiner. Hey, how you doing, John? Good. How you doing, Cripps? Doing real good, man. It's a huge honor to have you on the show with us. Yeah, it's, it's great to talk to the both of you. You guys have been so great to me on Twitter over the years. Yeah, man. Well, I, you know, definitely doubling down here because, you know, I'll just kind of come out and say it. I obviously, uh, I'm an Abel Ferreira fan, but I've always felt a little bit distance from him. I don't consider myself an expert. Uh, whereas I think the two of you, uh, just from conversations I've had from you and from the podcast that Marcus has done, I know, know your shit about him. So I'm really glad to have both of you on here to kind of get into this guy who's been such a mystery. And I think obviously we want to talk about Tommaso, which was just uh, released by Lincoln Center on their virtual cinema. But um, what I proposed was that we actually go back and talk about the last decade of uh, Abel Ferrer from 2010 on because it's been an interesting decade and I think it's just kind of astonishing that he's still consistently working that he's still alive that he's you know really calling all the shots I mean he's a man you know who made movies that he wants to make it's been a long time now he's really been calling the shots he's been in control of his career I mean considering you know, obviously he had his start where he did some genre films, he did some TV work, and he kind of had uh, a few obvious work for hire things. But I feel like it's been a while now that he's been making Abel Ferreira movies for sure. So I guess my first question to you guys, and I'll just ask John to start us off. At what point do you think, it, uh, what point did he become a full-time Abel Ferreira? What, what movie do you think it was that he's just been doing his thing ever since? Well, you know, there's multiple phases to Abel Ferrara, but it feels like it all came together with King of New York. Like, when I first got into Abel Ferrara, most of his 80s movies were barely mentioned. It was almost like Miss 45 and then King of New York. You never heard of Cat Chaser or, you know, barely any of the other ones. 
Like trying to grow, yeah. Yeah, it, it was kind of, um, I came to them late, actually. It was after the 90s stuff. But um, Abel Farrar, as we know him now, I, I suppose, is, uh, the reason why he can be so independent is sort of because he's in exile, which it's like a, a double-edged sword where he has all this creative freedom, but it's also been pretty hard to keep up with them over the years as a result of that. Yeah. Well, that's, we, we, we mentioned that he's, you know, kind of had phases of his career, obviously, you know, there's, uh, there have been, uh, for a while there, I was worried that he was actually, we we're going to lose him. I felt like when Mary and when Go-Go Tales didn't get like broad releases, uh, in the States, yeah. he was going to become one of those filmmakers who are just like, oh yeah, whatever happened to him? He had other movies. I'd never seen them. You know, it's just going to be something who, someone who faded out, but it seems more recently, uh, I don't know if it's a resurgence or it's just the fact that his films be more readily available, but it feels like people are back on the Ferreira train, which has been really great. Absolutely. I mean, he's a beneficiary of piracy, like, which is a weird thing to say, but those movies, like you could only pirate them back in the day and it kind of kept him alive. And I, I see with like film enthusiasts younger than us, like in their early twenties to mid twenties, like they love Abel Ferrara because like they, they don't, it wasn't like he was in exile, which is they, they experienced all these movies at once and they, they see him as like the fucking truth that he is, you know? Yeah. And that's interesting too. to think that there are people coming into him now and thinking only of like his Roman period, you know, and <laughs> yeah. kind of slowly going back and rediscovering right. Miss 45 and the driller killer and even body snatchers and things like that. Right. But yeah, um, it's, it's amazing. Um, but even looking back, I mean, maybe this is just me, but like, you know, when I try to think like, what's my favorite Abel Ferreira movie or something like that, even that is kind of elusive to me. Like it's, it's interesting. It's hard. It's a hard career to just sort of bottle up and look at, even though he's been against, he's been so consistently altruistic in his, you know, his visions. It's just weird to think back and think, well, he did our Xmas, which is a crime film, urban crime, I guess. <laughs> New Rose Hotel, which is cyber punkish but not really at all and the funeral is a, a gangster movie sort of you know he's right, right. he's someone who's you can only describe him as Abel Ferreira like I really don't think there's another way to do it do you agree Marcus I know that you and Chris on the wrong real episode mentioned how he's kind of gone back and he's sort of revisiting some of the old themes kind of reworking them in his new films do you feel like there's kind of a mirror between his early career and the new one or his the last 20 years of his work <clears throat> Last 20 years, yeah, not his earliest stuff. I mean, no matter what, from start to finish, there's always like a pinch of Abel Ferrara. And there's always, there's, even if it's just one single continuous thread, it's there. But I think around like Blackout, and somewhere between Blackout and Norris Hotel is where a lot of the style that we see now, just like he does a lot of like the dreamy, like overlay of images and stuff and like the music. I mean, he wasn't, you know, Prior to like blackout, you didn't really see. Maybe in, in there was a hint of it in the addiction, but um, yeah, I think style-wise, there has been kind of a consistency. And also, you know, well, maybe dangerous game, but like from you know blackout on, there's been this like underlining thread in some of these movies where it's just like he's doing semi-autobiographical things about himself. Whether like Go Go Tales is just about the guy trying to get. It's about him trying to get a movie made just in the form of like, hey, I got to keep this strip club open or like um, Mary, Matthew Modine is like a, a version of Abel Ferrari. He's this film director, similar to Tommaso. So um, I don't know, kind of rambling right now, but uh, 
No, yeah, he's gotten super yeah. autobiographical lately. Yeah, absolutely. but 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 for but that's but not really like for a while though, like because the blackout was well, no, D- Dangerous Game was '93, and Harvey Keitel was just playing a version. I mean, you could say that even about Bad Lieutenant. Honestly, Harvey Keitel is kind of a literally during the period that Bad Lieutenant was made. It's like is very much a shadow of a- a- Abel Ferrara to to some degree. So. So where would you say that the late er- career Ferreira began? Would you say it was, you know, with, as early as King of New York or Bad Lieutenant? Or you think it's more like the blackout where he's kind no, of no. in control of his work? I, I think it was, uh, yeah, I guess the blackout. I mean, he was still doing stuff, like, because he did that section of, like, you know, S- Subway Stories, and that was HBO. So he was popular enough to do, like, a to be involved in, in something like that. But I guess the seeds of it were in... in um, the blackout because that's another thing where people who claim to love Abel Ferrara like haven't seen that and understandably so like I'm not trying to you know real fit like it's not the easiest movie to see you know so yeah like that's when it started but I think it really it's really doesn't come up a lot which is why I'm surprised that you picked that one but I mean don't be surprised and like Dennis Hopper and Abel Fer- it's like one like like that's what I hate so much it's like one of those collaborations that you'd think more people would want to know about and and seek out you, you know what I'm saying um but I guess post RXmas is really yeah like somewhere between after RXmas and just before Mary is when the I hate using the word obscure but that's when the the kind of later European you know era of Abel Ferrara stuff, which is, which it kind of still is you know to 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 this very day so yeah, yeah I I agree very much with Marcus with the late period. Um, I kind of misinterpreted when he said when he became Abel Ferrara with King of New York. But late period definitely to me is blackout, and I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, like '97 is when October Films got bought out, and that was like the last of the big independent studios. And like he's sure. kind of he's kind of been in exile ever since then. Like his career never really recovered in America, sure. which which is like I think that's where a lot of you know his experimenting came from was just simply because he could. You know, and another thing, I have to go back a little bit, uh, back just real quick to, it, it's funny that like, you know, what was it called? Cat Chaser was essentially like that, talk about a, no one talks about that movie, but that's like the movie that like completely turned Kelly McGillis off of acting. Like there's such a, <laughs> there's such a major story in that nothing of a movie. And I always feel like that adds insult to injury where it's just like, you know, you're this woman and like, Top Gun and Witness and all stuff and then you do this movie and it's like, you know, I can't do this shit anymore and no one ends up seeing it. It becomes this like, kind of nothing like movie, like which I, I there's like layers to like how sad that is almost. You know? It seems like that's the one Abel hates the most too because it, they apparently just took it away from him and it, sure. it doesn't resemble anything he wanted to make. Sure, yeah. It's interesting too, but to what uh, Frankensteiner was saying about that era of independent film in the nineties, because I feel like he was so entrenched in that, you know, where you'd see bad Lieutenant or the addiction, you know, up on the shelf with, you know, the Coen brother movies or what, you know, whatever the hot independent film of the, that, uh, you know, time was. And so you're right when he kind of loses that, he is sort of in free fall a little bit. And that, that does align pretty much exactly with when he would start doing his, European films that didn't get seen over in the States. It's um, also this, like, I don't mean to cut you off, but this, like, cool association, too, where it's just, like, that that New York 
stock of like, you know, he worked with a lot of the same guys that like Spike Lee, Jim Jarmusch, Hal Hartley, like they've all kind of rotated these same actors. So it's like you associate them with each other because they're all like, like, especially like during the 90s, like a New York independent filmmaker was like a thing. So it's like Gene Carlos Pizzito, Harvey Keitel has, you know, worked with all those guys. So there's, there was that kind of connection that, that gave him more prominence as well. Uh, at least, At least that's how I thought. Like, that's how I saw it. Yeah, and Harvey was like the weird interloper who just like worked with everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it helped get projects off the ground and everything. But um, so obviously we're going to talk about Tommaso coming up. But I thought we'd go back uh, to the first movie he made of the last decade, which was 444, Last Day on Earth. Um, And again, it's just, you know, it's just weird comparing this to something like King of New York or Bad Lieutenant. You know, I mean, there's, there's definitely been some you know some changes and some progression in his career even though it's un- undeniably an Abel Ferrer movie uh but John let me throw it over to you pitch it over to you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on 444 yeah sure um well it comes from that great tradition of like absolutely literal titles um it's 444 last day on earth it, uh, an intentionally vague natural disaster which is a result of humans' effect on the planet, uh, specifically the ozone layer. And because of this, at 4.44 a.m., it's all over, no more Earth. And uh, we experienced this last day almost exclusively uh, in an awesome artist's loft overlooking the corner of Delancey and Essex on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it's Willem Dafoe as Cisco, an actor and recovering addict, and he's wonderful as usual when he lives with his... uh, Artist girlfriend played not quite as wonderfully by Shannon Lee. <laughs> and it's essentially like a hang movie with these two in their loft through their ups and downs and, you know, reckoning of past regrets as they wait for the end of the world. Uh, my favorite thing about this movie is that it comes in under 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. That's something I have to say about Pasolini as well. Like, I like that he can get it in there nice and tight and just, nice you know. tight. Even though it? it's... Uh, I saw Pasolini. That movie felt so long to me. I never even bothered to check the runtime on that. Yeah, I think Is it's 80-something minutes, right? Man, that movie felt like three hours. <laughs> wow. I'm not even joking. Okay. Never mind. All right. Well, 4.44, all but 11 minutes are in that loft, which I think is pretty amazing. Because, it, right. like, it, it, it flies for me, anyway. Yeah. And what are your... Uh, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this one um, in terms of, you know, everything else? Do you think it's one of the better, his better films? Do you think it's... Well, I have to say, uh, 2012 me um, was, like, really disappointed. In it. Like, I, I, I kind of thought it was one of his lesser films, but I found myself thinking about it a lot over the years, and especially this quarantine period. Like, it was very much on my mind, and re-watching it this year, it was like, like I found it really beautiful, and you know, it's not quite top shelf Abel Ferrara, but it's it's closer than I originally thought for sure. I'm glad you said that about the quarantine. Watching it again this time, I definitely had that feeling, especially when he sneaks uh, into Natasha Leone's apartment through the window. Yeah, to be great, with his old such a great scene. Yeah, to be with his old attic friends. You really appreciate that even more when you know you've been cooped up, you know, in your house, <laughs> yeah. um, and thinking about the way things used to be because you kind of realize it's not just about you know being able to go outside and you know just live life the way you normally do, but it's also about like I used to go and get high with these guys, you know, this used to be what my life was, 
and it's just you kind of even though you know i personally i've not had uh you know trouble with drugs i can appre- at least appreciate the idea of like what happened to that part of my life you know that i you suddenly feel like wanting to go and revisit that absolutely i, I really love that scene well paul hip who plays willem's uh, brother and is in a lot of able for our movies um he has a line that's pretty much like i when he was an addict, he's like, I spent so many like hours and days with these people. Like I, like I want to see them again on the last day on earth. And that's very much the feeling you're talking about in quarantine, just to like, you want to see people again, you know? Yeah. But also just, yeah, exactly. But, uh, but also this feeling of like, I need to get my life back. Like, well, you know, this is <laughs> yes. something that, you know, where, where it almost feels like you know, I need to revisit that. I need to re- reimagine that because I don't even know what it is anymore. What normalcy is anymore, and, which for know, a film about addiction, like really hits well, home. Also right. on the other hand, right. Willem just wants to like, he just wants to get high and, and crawl in a hole. So that's kind of like the opposite of Paul hip who like wants to be very aware and, and get back to it. And Willem kind of just wants to just, just fucking hide. And I, I kind of relate more to Willem than Paul hip in that scene. It, it's funny because I was raised by a, a dad who for the ma- majority of, of his working adult life worked with addicts. And you hear this from other people too that like, I've, I've heard this on more than one occasion where like if you're a former addict, then clean for years, but it's like, if I knew the world, if I absolutely knew the world was going to end like you know, on this day, then yeah, I'll, I'll get high again. Like I've, I've heard that from people and they've remained sober for the rest of their life too, saying that, which is like such a powerful, brave, thing to say but like as john was just talking frank and i was just talking about that it just made me think of like yeah i've, I've heard addicts kind of say that straight up like, yeah i mean, well, just want to get high yeah well abel obviously it's on his mind all the time i mean sure of course <laughs> why do you think the film seems so long marcus just because it's the the single setting or no, no, I was talking about Pasolini when, when you would quickly say oh, Pasolini. Oh, oh, Pasolini. I said Pasolini. Sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, let me clear that up. Yeah, because you said Pasolini was short. Sorry, sorry. No, no, 444 breezes by. I, 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 really, like, I really like this movie. And I, I find it odd that rarely, I mean, I made it on Twitter like a long time ago. No one made the connection of like Jay-Z naming his album, you know, for the famous 444 album. And like no one in any interview ever asked about this uh, Abel Ferrara movie. Got herzogged like, again. Constantly getting herzogged. <laughs> yeah. Um, you didn't tweet it. You didn't tweet him about it, Marcus. No, I just tweeted the two, <laughs> like the album cover. This was like a long before when I had like two followers on Twitter, like literally. But it's just like um, I just found it funny that it's like because even Jay Z's album Four Forty Four, it's about him like losing it all and losing everything, which is you know in the same vein as like, hey, the world's gonna end. So. Just an interesting connection. Like, no. But at the same time, a lot of people that love Jay-Z probably don't know, like, the IFC released, you know, 444 last day on Earth, so. Which was in three theaters. It was just a piss right. poor release. Right, right. Which is more than we could say for Go-Go Tales, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was like three more than the previous two, yeah. Yeah. It's funny that he would come, like, well, again, I don't know how much he's thinking about his career, like, on a normal basis, but it's just interesting for him to come back on this one, which has such a finality to it, you know? Yeah. Um, that, you know, he want to say that after, the, you know, having the time in the 90s where he was, you know, kind of on demand and then kind of disappearing for a while, that he'd come back and say, okay, here's my big comeback movie. It's about the end of the world. <laughs> and I have to say, I have a rare, you know, because he was, I, I've told the story, I think I told it on the Wrong Real podcast, but um, when I did the April 4 episode, 
I, I was I heard him talk about 444 before it was even made, and he was really excited about it. And he also, because you, you're talking about the end, and it's just like he talked about ideas after 444 as well that obviously didn't come out. But he, it, it's funny because he, when I went to go see a screening of Mary in Anthology Film Archives and at the Q&A, it was that typical, so what are you working on next? And then he said, he was like, I'm going to make this movie about the end of the world, but I hear this uh, Lars von Trier guy is making the same kind of movie, but it does whatever. Mine's going to be better. Um, obviously, he, he was obviously he was talking about melancholia, but um, I just found that really funny. But at the same time, I'm just going off what John said, like he's coming back with the end, but he was really like excited about talking about 444, like in, in its in infancy. So he wasn't like, it's about the end of the world because this is how I feel. I think it just... I don't know. He was just kind of excited to be making movies again. I think it was just kind of coincidental. Well, it's funny. Bela Tars, the uh, the Turin horse, came out and Melancholia at that time. Oh, and, 2011. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, oh, and, sure. and Abel okay. Abel had replied as proof positive that the Zeitgeist exists, which I found pretty funny. But it is amazing. Like he had like these three auteur apocalypse movies that all came out at around the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for me, it kind of makes sense that he would come back with something that has a grand finality to it, considering so many of his films end, absolutely end. You know, they end with the, you know, with the complete evisceration of the characters, uh, you know, or just everything coming apart. But, you know, they, some of his films have like a definite finale to them. So for me, to, for him to kind of come back and say, well, where am I going to go except for to destroy the whole world and have, you know, the lovers die in each other's arms? Uh, it's kind of poetic in a way. Sure, absolutely. And the art. He's destroyed all the art, too. Right. <laughs> Which I think, I mean, you have to read it a little bit as like the death of New York City to him, where it was such a big part of him as an artist. And, you know, like a lot of people, uh, gentrification is, that you know, that's part of the Abel Ferrara story, part of the reason why he's not making movies in New York City anymore. And Absolutely. Yeah. I feel yeah. like 444 is at least partially a, a take on that. I absolutely you know, agree. Abel for always does, he does make me think. I mean, that that I mean that late eight. I mean, we moved out of New York City in the late eighties, but I, I I am lucky enough to like I moved back to New York City after college in two thousand four, and it was like the very last thing like of it when you can like without any plans just walk through like the East Village and see like you know Mihio Hitori's like side project just playing at a bar you know what I'm saying like forget it now like you'll never see that now but it just all that stuff reminds me of like yeah like the the, the kind of New York City that a April Ferrari knew yeah it's a good point about just old New York is gone which is weird because by 2010 11 when that movie was made like New York is already dead I'm, I'm using air quotes but you know it is a cool send-off yeah absolutely because at this point, well, it's funny because I was just thinking, yeah, it is his last film in New York, but actually his next film, 2014, uh, is titled Welcome to New York. So it's almost like he destroys New York and then invites himself right back into it uh, in, well, in a way. It's a different New York. It's a very different New York. Um, Marcus, let me pitch to you. What uh, do you think of Welcome to New York from 2014? I'm going to address that. This is a different New York, too, uh, in a second. But um, <clears throat> yeah, Welcome to New York. Uh, it's a movie with layers, but on you know the the, the top layer, it's about this very powerful French uh, figure uh, named Devereaux, who uh, he's behind closed doors. He's very debaucherous, and it's you know obviously loosely well not obviously some people don't know this, but it's based on the Dominique Strauss Kahn case where 
uh, he in real life, he assaulted a, a, a hotel maid. So Abel Ferrara kind of riffed on that. And it's just about this powerful guy who comes to America, thinks he can kind of do whatever he wants, but the maid that he sexually assaults presses charges, he gets arrested. But then the film kind of shifts and then you see it from the perspective of, of his like kind of power hungry wife who is more upset that he got caught than like what he actually did because she's worried about her image. And I think this is enough, this is one of Jacqueline Bissett's best roles. I thought it was, you know, I know whatever, for what it's worth, I thought it was Oscar worthy. But, you know, Your I say- life has huh? been upside down since the day you were born. I mean, you know, and then, so, and, and I say layers because the character that Devereaux, I don't know, if you've ever seen Dominic Charles, he don't look like, well, Gerard De, De Perdue in, in, in any point of his life, but like still, the character of Devereaux is also kind of like Gerard Depardieu, who was kind of once this like kind of hunky sex symbol, and now he's just like in real life. Gerard Depardieu is this overweight guy who like he's interviewed. He talks about how much wine he drinks and how he doesn't care about his health. And then you know at the same time, some of the escapades of Devereaux, you know that Abel Ferrara has been there as well. You, you know what I'm saying? So like that's where like layers come from, and then. Uh, yeah, this is a movie that I like very much. I funny, so for a couple of years I wrote for this uh, publication, I'm not gonna say who, but I wrote about the the cut, the first cut of the film that Abel Ferrara didn't uh, approve, apparently. But either way, I still like that. Like, Welcome to New York was in my, the, the, the cut that he didn't even like was in my top 10 of 2014. Um, I don't know if we wanna get into- Yeah, was that stuff a, was it a longer cut? No, no. Well, this is—it's it, 108 minutes. I, I, the one, the, the initial one that he didn't like that the world saw at first was—it was 108 minutes. It was—it was a shorter version. It, huh. it was like a few minutes shorter. Interesting. Yeah. So you prefer that one? Well, I—I I, I don't. I—I I think they're both fine. I'm, I'm not very rarely. I'm not one of these like directors cut. Ver, you know, I—I'm really not. I'm going to be honest. Like, there's obviously some cases where like the cut that the filmmaker wanted was better, but generally speaking, based off of his own words, and there are a bunch of stories, like I was getting, fr- I, and this brought me back to 2015 when I was doing more research on it, and it just like, he tells multiple versions. There's, there's just like the cut that he approved, it, it wasn't the cut that, you know, that he approved, but then in another interview, he said he didn't like the cut because he thought that it wasn't sympathetic enough towards the hotel maid character that was assaulted. But I didn't, I thought it just showed that she was just innocent woman coming to clean a room and she got sexually assaulted. So I'm not really sure what Abel Ferrara was talking about. But then on the flip side, the people at IFC were like, no, this is nonsense. I think he's just making a big stink for reasons we don't know, because according to us, this is what he approved. So you, you, you can't really nail down a solid thing. Even when you think you have a solid answer, there's another interview where April Ferrara says something that's kind of different, which seems kind of on brand for him. Yeah, he's an unreliable narrator for sure. Yeah, and that's kind of why it's just like, I'm able to narrow it down to a couple of different things. But either way, even though it technically doesn't have his blessing, I think the 108-minute version is is great. And it's also very... um, it's very, like, there's some scenes in Welcome to New York that are very, like, Malick-esque. I think Welcome to New York plays into it goes well with Tommaso they're, they're both they're very similar in their style there's more of this like kind of dreaminess to them in, in parts um and yeah I really like what Welcome to New York I like that movie a lot so that's interesting I yeah I've never seen that for I love the available version 
Yeah. I think it's I think it's one of the best movies of the decade, honestly. Oh, the decade! Um, wow, the decade! Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I got a top ten. Of- I, had it, I had it in my top ten of 2014, so of of eight years. So I guess it's not that far off to consider the best of the decade. John, you're saying top ten? Yeah, I got a top ten of that that decade. Like I think. Wow. It, like it 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 is that decade to me. Like it it very much represents what I think of that decade. You know. Wow. Yeah, I feel the same way, and even obviously a little prescient and it's like you know this came before harvey weinstein and we me too and uh yeah. time's up and all that yeah. stuff i mean and it's it, fe- it feels like a reaction to all that rather than something that actually came before it i mean obviously i think that's something you could say about ferrar is that he's always kind of ahead of the curve on everything or he's definitely someone who you know knows about all the bullshit before everybody else does yeah yeah um and this film oh, reflects that so way. many of the images of, of harvey weinstein in handcuffs just automatically reminded me of D- Depardieu like it's Marcus oh. could do, it could do side by sides about that like it's amazingly uh, similar yeah. oh and, well that reminds you damn you just so you just reminded me of like so him in handcuffs and when he my, my favorite line from that movie is when one of the officers correction officers whatever you say he tells him like Depardieu he's not used to, he's never been to any kind of jail especially like a grimy New York jail so he has this kind of an attitude and then in one part which I'm sure that just about everybody else who saw this movie, they probably thought whatever. But to me, this, this spoke volumes. This, this, this guy, who's probably not even an actor, who played one of the arresting officers, he said, quote, he was like, yo, you're not a tough guy here. Stop that shit. Like, I, lo- I just love that line where it's like, <laughs> this guy, he thinks he's like king shit. And then this like guy who normally would be, I'm using air quotes again, beneath him is just like, relax. You're not going anywhere. You're, you're, you're not special anymore. And that's, to me does were my growing up you know one half of my parental units my dad was an old school new yorker and just the way he said it reminded me of something my dad would say my dad was very protective of new york he was very he was just super super new york city so like that really reminded me of like my dad my uncle my aunts like all those all these people who just come from that era of new york city well i think is really the magic trick of this film, at least for me. Uh, and I was not aware when I first saw it, you know, of the, the real case or what it was based on or anything like that. Oh. Um, is the fact that, <clears throat> you know, obviously he's, you know, this uh, piggish kind of a guy, you know, who's, you know, the womanizer and his uh, sex fiend and everything like that. His handling by the cops when he's placed under arrest and when they take him and they strip search him and everything is just... And coming from somebody who's def- definitely afraid of the cops uh, is so hard to take that I almost feel sorry for him. You know, like he, like I feel like Ferrara really pulls a trick where he, he turns it around and it's like, he, you feel like I wouldn't want to be in that situation. You know, like these cops have like successfully sure. intimidated me. And I re- had a memory too of it being much longer than it actually is. I mean, I thought it was like a, like a, 40 minutes long or something like that, that he's being processed uh, so just because it, it felt that he like pulled him out for so long. That's funny you say that. Cause to me, I mean, for a second, it's just like, Oh, look at this pitiful guy. But then you remember why he's there. And to me, my, my, I'm, I'm very literal minded for the most part. I thought it was just Ferrara flipping the tables on him. It's like, all right, it's time for you to get sexually assaulted. 
Take your clothes <laughs> yeah, off. Right. Your body looks ugly. I know you don't want to be naked, so we're going to make you get naked. It's that kind of just like, yeah, how, how's it feel kind of thing. Like, that's that, that's mostly, like, how, how I took it. Yeah, you me know? too. Uh, yeah. They were just completely dehumanizing yeah. to yeah. Pardue, uh, you know, as he, was, he did with women, like, throughout the entire movie. And you know what adds to, you know, reading about, like, a lot of, I mean, some people mentioned it, but not as many as I would like how, like, which is another movie that came out the same year, too. It's like... There, like he grunts through that performance, just like how uh, you know Timothy Spall grunts through the Mr. Turner thing. Like I, I found that they were very similar. And I was like, oh wow, two 2014 movies about like overweight like guys who just kind of like grunt through, through the performance. But especially, he's breathing extra heavily during the whole strip search thing. He's just like, <laughs> and it just kind of adds to like the grotesqueness of of who he is. Oh yeah, no point is he any less than ogreish in this performance. Right, right. Um, but but really, I mean, I think, and again, I think this is really. I think this might be what Ferrara intended. Um, I forget about why he's there. Like I wow. get so like okay. like worried about. It. I forget so much that the line when he's alone with Jacqueline Bissett, and because Ferrara has not, you know, obviously shown us exactly what happened. And he says to her, I did not do it. I did not do it. Yeah. You know, he, and he says, I did not, I did not rape her. And he says, I, I just, I just came on her. And it's like, oh my God, yeah. I'm so yeah. disgusted because yeah. I, again, I haven't had sympathy for this character exactly, but I've at least, you know, had compassion for that experience and I felt bad for him. And when he says that, it's just like, it for me was like, it destroyed my world when I first saw the movie. Like, oh my God, I've been feeling compassion for this fucking monster sure. for the last half hour you know it's just right. you know, well, like you Pardue, he's playing an animal like and he's literally playing him as an animal i think that's what all the grunts are about like he's very literally playing that character as an animal you know and then but like there's the scene you know later on in the film he has to go to therapy and the shit he says there is like oh my god just flat is like i don't care yeah. Like when he has to talk about it, he's like, I, I just don't care. Like he says it in that tone too. You're like, God damn, this fucking guy. So it's amazing because in, in Abel for our interviews, he has much more uh, sympathy for, for like the real Dominique Strauss-Kahn. And like, he kind of thinks he might've been railroaded a little because, you know, he was a leftist uh, banker. And there's obviously many reasons to maybe make that charge up. Although I don't know enough about that, but Depardieu, there's almost no sympathy for, which I find interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd read that there are, you know, conspiracy theories and whatnot. They said, you know, they wanted to frame him for uh, sexual assault, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And look, and when that movie came out, they were threatening to sue Abel Ferrara and, and, and the film and the film uh, producers and whatnot too. I don't right. know about all that, that. That was a whole other thing. Yeah. Because I, I think what happened too, I don't know, it was either just before or just after, there was an SVU episode literally based on, or like, just like Welcome to, just like the real, like he got on the plane and then like at the last minute, you know, just before he got away, like they, they got him right when he got on the plane. And I think it was just overwhelming of like, oh shit, there's this popular American television show and there's a film about like, no, it's time to sue kind of thing. So that happened around that time too. When you were saying that the tone of the film has sort of a dreamlike kind of feel to it, uh, I agree with you there. It's in another film that it reminds me of, just uh, another film that's based on a real incident is Mia Hansen Love's Father of My Children, which is, you know. Oh, yeah, like, you know, sure, sure, sure. Uh, this producer, this film producer who uh, ends up killing himself in the middle of the film. 
And I, I think I had that same reaction to, you know, him killing himself that I did to when Jay Pardue says, I just came on her. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, it just totally pulls the, the carpet out from under your feet uh, in that moment. But that, that uh, guy, have you ever, have you ever, uh, obviously his name escapes me, but have you, you know, that guy's career? I don't. I, he's very Depardieu. Yo, he's, but no, I'm not talking about the actor, but the guy who he plays in Father of My Children. Oh, oh, Humbert uh, Balsam. Yeah, yeah. yeah, speaking of Bellatar, because he was supposed to be producing his next film. Is what happened when he yeah. actually killed himself. Yeah, he produced Mandalay. He produced. He was one of the producers on. I think it was The Intruder. You know, the Claire Denis film. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you know, he acted in a Brisson movie. So it's like. He worked in for, for all these different, like, like some of my favorite folks. Like, I, I, I just, I found that so fascinating. How, like, from Von Trier to Claire Denis to Bellatar to Brisson, like, he's connected to all these people. He even did work. He used to work uh, behind the scenes for the Merchant Ivory Collection uh, back back in the day. So there's all this, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, he probably worked with Depardieu at some point. Probably, um, yeah, sure. Uh, but yeah, just Depardieu's complete, you know, nihilist, um, sort of, you know, view that through his character where he says, no one wants to be saved, no one. Yeah. And you realize that that's like such a predator, you know, mindset there. Yep. The idea of if nobody wants to be saved, then why not do anything to them that you want to do? Yeah. Depardieu is so goddamn good in that movie. He's like, fantastic. And, and yep. Bissette is fantastic. Yeah, she is. Um, and when he's talking about nuns, uh, you know, like the erotic work that nuns used to write and that how all nuns, you know, used to be uh, women who were forced into the habit because of, you know, their promiscuity reminded me of Miss 45 and made me think like, I got a oh, nun wow. you can fucking meet, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I agree with John totally. I think that this has the feeling of the decade. And again, it's, you know, of what we would all come to realize about, you know, a lot of uh, uh, high ranking predators and, and whatnot later on and so it feels very of its time and also ahead of its time in a lot of ways it's a little ahead of its time it's the story of abel you know his entire career absolutely um so yeah i'm a big fan of welcome to new york uh anything else you guys wanted to add about it before we move on uh, no I'm, I'm... yeah there, there was one tidbit and this came from abel ferrara so it it might not be absolutely true but he swears that the the hotel room where the real encounter of uh, DSK and the maid was the same hotel room where he shot New Rose Hotel, which no, he's, really, he's claimed that. <laughs> huh. I mean, I, I do find it hard to believe, but you know, still, no. that's Abel Ferrar. I, I choose to believe him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to investigate that. I just, <laughs> I, I trust Abel. Uh, so moving on to uh, Pasolini from 2000. Well. Some of these games came out uh, at various times in 2014. I think is when it premiered at Toronto, right, Marcus? When you saw it yep. then? Yep. Yeah, that was. It's the... amazing. They they premiered like a couple of months apart at two different festivals, which is kind of mind blowing because they're I two know. spectacular movies. Yeah, and completely different too. Yes, I would say. Uh, Pasolini, of course, uh, chronicles the final days of Pier Paolo Pasolini, a uh, great time filmmaker who was murdered in 1975 after he made uh, one of the most controversial films of all time, Salo, the uh, 120 Days of Sodom. Uh, that's where we pick up. He's literally screening that film. And um, 
Ferrara took a lot. I guess it started as the idea was that they were going to take these diaries or these uh, um, un- unfinished works of Pasolini's, and he was actually going to do a, a gender reversal and have Zoe Lund play the Pasolini character, um, which didn't happen because she, she died obviously. Um, But then he ended up doing it with Defoe instead. And I think that the great thing about this film, I mean, other than the fact that it's obviously a very unconventional biography, even though we, a biopic, even though we see, you know, him watching his own film and it's all based on actual documents. It's not like he's going to sit down and play that song. We all recognize, you know, and we're all going to be like, Oh, I know that song. Uh, it's a very different take and it's a really kind of beautiful take. Um, what I think is so great about watching this film, just sitting there as an audience member is that we all know as film fans, as Pasolini fans, that this is a man who's headed to his destiny. You know, he doesn't know it. Um, and we feel a little bit like Defoe does in 444 where he's watching his neighbor walk out and commit suicide, right? You like want to yell at him the way Defoe yells at people off the patio in 444. You know, there's this anxiety that's entirely on the audience side in this film where he's just living his life. He's going about like his Mr. Rogers routine of like picking out his clothes from the closet and, you know, just reading the newspaper, just, you know, just living life like he expects, you know, that the next day is going to pick up right where he left off. So, I think that that's like a really cool sense of anxiety in the film that, you know, isn't obvious, you know, isn't evident in the way it's shot, but it's something that we kind of bring to it. Um, but what I like about his approach to Pasolini specifically, uh, the way that Defoe plays him is how, you know, we kind of are introduced to him as the philosopher, the political thinker. And then we see him in this scene in a, a restaurant transform into the storyteller, the filmmaker, right? And in Defoe's performance, you see this absolute joy in his expressions when he's explaining the screenplay to his actor. And it's this really beautiful moment where he's, you know, so absorbed in what he's created and he's he has it all in his head and he's just trying to like get it all out there into the world and create this thing. Um, and what he's describing is actually filmed by Ferrara as his, his it's uh, Pasolini's unfilmed script, uh, Porno Teo Colossal. And we see, you know, uh, segments starring Ninetto Davoli that are really, really beautiful. Um, they're maybe not the way that Pasolini would have shot the movie, but I think that that's a really cool idea to insert that into this film. Um, so I, I think that I don't know if I love this film as much as I, you know, I don't know if it's one of his best movies. I don't know if it's totally flawless, but I think it's an amazingly well-made film that I really enjoy watching. And I really like the approach to it. Yeah. Absolutely. What were your thoughts when you saw it at Toronto? Yeah, I was... <clears throat> so, two of my Canadian buddies, my, 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 my friend Dave, who runs a great film site, uh, TO Film Review, and another friend of mine had seen it before me a few days earlier. Because that year, that was the first and only time I had ever done the back end of the festival. Like, I came on, like, Thursday as opposed to the previous Thursday. So like it had already been seen and two people I knew personally, they're like, what's the first movie you're going to see? I'm like, Pasolini, I can't wait. And they were both, these are two at, at separate times. They're both like, oh, okay. And I was like, what does that mean? They're just like, it's, it's fine. You'll, you'll see what I mean. And then I, I tried to ignore it. And you know, like, cause I, I don't want to, I, I don't want it to like influence what I thought, but it really is like when I saw it, it was just kind of like, it movie felt so long, like I had said earlier. Like it really felt like a three-hour movie, and it's 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 far from that. It just was just kind of this like meandering kind of. I don't know. I just feel. I just to me, I just wanted it to be about this like 
75 minute movie just about the last few hours of Pasolini where like he, daily thing, blah, 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 and then he gets killed and that's how the movie, like I just wanted this like kind of blunt raw movie. And he tried to do something different, so I get that. I, any biopic or true story that only focuses on a super short period of time is always gonna hold a special place in my heart. I hate the birth to death kind of thing. But it just didn't really click too hard for me. It was just like, at best, it was like, it was okay. Yeah, no, we're, uh, like Last Days, the Van Sant film, you know, I really like biopics that kind of pick up at the end. Yeah. And again, you know, who knows the end better than Ferrara, as we've been saying. Right. Um, but let me ask, the meandering, though, uh, you feel like it's a different, less successful meandering than the Malik-like uh, approach that you were talking about with uh, 444? A thousand percent. Welcome to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to New York. It's welcome to New York. It's not too much meandering. I mean, there are some. There's some intentionally like nothing moments in Welcome to New York that I like, but more to me. But like Tommaso is a perfect example of just kind of like, oh, he's walking. You know, he's walking this woman home. You know, from the acting workshop, or he's just like in the park. Like, there's a lot of that. There's a lot more of that in Tommaso, and he does it really well. And also in, in 444. So, I, I don't know. I just think it was, it was a slight miss. The movie's not terrible, but it's just nothing that I, I think about too much. And I remember sharing my review of it. And then, like, just, like, two years ago, I was like, oh, did this come out? Like, I, I, I completely, I kind of forgot about it, you know? Have you revisited it since then at all? No, I, I, I haven't. I haven't. The other stuff I had, I watched 444 the other day. I watched Welcome to New York again. Uh, I didn't re. I, I I don't have money to be re-renting uh, new movies, but when I rented Tommaso, I watched it three times in two days, so I got a good grip on it. Do you have a library card, Marcus? I don't actually. Uh, I think my wife does. Oh well, it's on Canopy. Pasolini's on Canopy for free. Oh, okay. All Sign right. Up. <laughs> John, your thoughts on Pasolini? Well, I I liked it more than Marcus. Um, you know, there's certain like biopics are generally really bad. I think everybody could agree with that. And yeah. Like with Michael, exceptions, but yeah. Yeah. But like there's certain like Michael Mann's Ali or, or something like this where, where it tries to do something different and it's always like, I really, really appreciate that. But again, but that movie was still like just sections of his life, which is probably why it worked. And it was kind of long. Like it didn't, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like, oh, here's his entire life. Like it was still the reason why Ali works, no matter how different he tried, is that he didn't do this entire, his entire life. You know what I mean? I think that's a big part of why that movie worked. Yeah, absolutely. But but I think that's why Pasolini works too. I mean, because mm-hmm. it it's a very short period of his life and, the experimentations with filming the the unfilmed stuff like i, I don't know I, I just thought it was i found it really lovely actually <laughs> and 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 then with the juxtaposition of like the dread that you know how it's going to end um you know i liked it quite a bit yeah i'm glad you brought up ali um i feel like i was having a conversation with rob Cotto about this not too long ago i really feel like if ali had been a hit you know if people had loved it the way that i loved it um man, movies would be so much different now. <laughs> we wouldn't have to have shit like Bohemian Rhapsody and stuff like that. Like <laughs> everyone would be, would feel more, have more liberty to like do things differently and not just like feed us the same old shit. You know, I mean, that's just a film that is so different than anything else. I don't know. I just, that's just a small rant on my part. I feel um, like there's so many uh, that seem like line in the sand where it's like, if, if we chose that instead of this, things would be so much better. You know? like yeah. you become, and Ali's definitely one of them. 
Um, but yeah, Michael Mann and uh, Farrar obviously, you know, have worked together in the past. And so I think they're that. still boys to this day. Uh, Michael Mann's the only other guy who cast Shannon Lee in anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Public enemies. Right. Um, no, well, that's Michael Mann and Farrar are, are, are boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a line too I uh, love in Pasolini is when he's being interviewed and the guy asked him, um, asked him, I, I should say, Defoe is Pasolini, I think, is totally immersed. Yeah. I, I think, unlike any of his other performances, while he's always great, obviously, in all of these uh, films, Pasolini is the one where it feels like I don't recognize Defoe at times. Like he's really Pasolini. Like he really, even though he's not speaking Italian, obviously. Uh, he really gets into that character and I really falls into it. And the resemblance is uncanny once he has the glasses on and everything. I first was, when I first heard that he was playing Pasolini, I thought, I don't know, but uh, I was really surprised by how good he is. Um, but with the line that he says in the movie that I love when he's being interviewed and the guy asks him if he had a man as Pasolini, if you have a magic wand and you can make all the institutions that you oppose disappear, what would you have left? Which I feel like is Twitter. <laughs> just right there like it's a twitter question of like yeah well smart guy if we defund the police then you know what then and passing these responses everything i'd have everything my life my life in the world like what are you talking about of course i would want everything i'm opposed to gone because that would be the ultimate freedom um i love that sentiment so much and i feel like that's a real ferrara philosophy i don't know i mean i'm assuming it's a real line from pasolini but it seems like something that Ferrar would give him a high five on because the idea of, you know, like if I didn't have anything to rail against, if I didn't have, uh, uh, you know, my addiction, if I didn't have, you know, my qualms with uh, religion, um, if, you know, I wasn't persecuted anymore for being an, an atheist, uh, homosexual, uh, communist filmmaker, of course I would want that. You know, what are you even talking about? So I really love that moment. But moving on, if we're done with Pasolini, uh, we're moved to the present day in a film called Tommaso, uh, which again stars Defoe. And we should talk about Defoe real quick because uh, obviously he's an actor who's been around uh, and worked with tons of people. Uh, he's worked with um, oh, who's he? Where's Oliver Stone, William Friedkin, Scorsese, David Lynch, right? Paul Schrader several times. Spike Lee, Herzog, Wes Anderson, Pixar, Wes Anderson several times. Yeah, Cronenberg, Lars von Trier, Sam Raimi. Oh shit, von Trier. Yeah, Sam. Oh yeah, Cronenberg. Yeah, several yeah. times with von Trier too. Yeah. He did a Vendors movie. Yeah. yeah, and he's done multiple sequels. I don't know yes. what is up with him in sequels. Speed Two, Nymphomaniac Two, <laughs> Mr. Bean's Hot. Ah. Uh, he loves the sequels, but um, I've never thought of him. I've never thought of him as like somebody's boy before. You know, he's worked with so many people. Um, and while I wouldn't say, you know, I think of Ferrara as being, you know, connected with, with, uh, with the foe, the way that, you know, Scorsese or De Niro or whatever, I think that now when I think yeah, about, now. you know, now when I think about Ferrara, I can't think about him without the foe and how they've done all these films together in such a short amount of time. And there's another one on the way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and they apparently live right down the street from each other in Rome. So this right, is basically yeah. a, a home movie. That it's Uncle make. Willem to like his kids, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so we see uh, Ferrara now uh, past the uh, unfortunate Sharon Lee era. <laughs> um, <laughs> newly married with a three-year-old child. And he's played in this movie by Willem Dafoe as Tommaso. 
Um, and it's sort of uh, a film about him, again, having, you know, going to meetings about his addiction and trying to get another film off the ground and dealing with uh, the possible infidelity of his wife. Um, Marcus, I know you were a big fan of it, so why don't you tell us your thoughts uh, on it? I mean, I love this film. It's, uh, we've said it already. Semi-autobiographical tale about this you know, filmmaker, American filmmaker, living in Rome. He has a much younger wife. He has a, a, a tod- toddler. Um, and, you know, he's also, you know, he's teaching this workshop, but he's also still trying to maintain his sobriety, which, you know, um, we don't need to say how long. Well, you, you can watch the movie, but he's maintaining his sobriety. But then, you know, throughout the film, he's having these, what's the term, vision? Or just like he, he he's, well, I, I, we don't daydream. need to get that. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah they, these kind of like daydreams about things that happen or that happen to or things that his wife does. Um, he's having this like self-doubt just kind of, you know, about himself to some degree. Um but then, you know, like the movie itself, like I was saying, a lot of it is there's just this lot of like cool, intentional aimlessness throughout the film where it's just like there's a lot of just shots where it's like, like I had said earlier, where he's just like walking one of his students home or like they're, they're driving, you know, in a car or just like when he goes to take the subway, Farrar makes it a point to just follow him walking to his house, to the subway stop, down the stairs, into the subway. So there's like, so there's a lot of that in this movie, but it's just shot so well that I really like how just every frame of it you know looks did you watch the lincoln center q a i didn't i actually didn't no um he he this is kind of amazing he mentions that well he, he kind of sets it up by saying that his most recent films have really been super collaborative with his cameraman and his actors um and this one he said you know was basically being written with defoe as they were doing it um he mentions that subway scene where he goes off to the subway farrar wasn't even there he said oh. he said the cameraman and defoe went off and shot, and then they came back. Farrar wasn't even like there when they shot it. Wow! And only saw it afterwards. So yeah, they definitely had that uh, looseness. I think is definitely. Sure. There's a great part too in the uh, Q and A, which is run by uh, that weenie Sean Baker, um, where <laughs> Farrar is um, mentioning a moment uh, where he's. Um, a really creepy moment in the movie where he's coming on to uh, one of his students in, uh, yeah. in the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes over to the park. And so Ferreira is describing it as we've just seen him playing in the car with that shit. <laughs> and Tom Baker does this, like you could see in his eyes, it's like, like moment where he just kind of freezes for a sec. It's yeah. delightful. I have watched that moment maybe three or four times. <laughs> Damn. See, I need to watch that cute because that's a very, I mean, more than one actor has. I'm going back to my to my Malik connection. More than one actor has said this about Terrence Malik, where it's like literally. I'm not even making a joke. Or like his cameraman. I mean, he hasn't had too many. Whether it's like you know Lubeski or Nestor Almendros, where they go off and film and almost direct. And Terrence Malik almost has this like secondary unit or like a second camera where he's literally like filming trees and butterflies. But like the actual boat, like the actual scene that's going to be used in the movie is is off somewhere else with that with just the, the the cinematographer and the actors and Malik is over somewhere doing he's not even there so I thought that's really which is something that David Gordon Green and Tim Orr have done before a few times in in, in older films as well so 
Yeah. Another another student of Malik's. That's really cool. Yeah, no, I, I, I need to watch that. It, it's it's still available to watch. You said, yeah, right? it's up on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, I need to. Okay, wow. But that's really um, cool. yeah, you did. You pre- uh, just published a great uh, piece on the movie and had some great uh, comparisons. Uh, it's funny though because I didn't get so much Malik. I got Regattas in this movie. That oh, you so, know, parts of like, like, especially sure. in our t- like like in our time, uh, yeah. for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. Just the uh, the kind of like. Cooking, like just like random like naked women show up in a bar kind of thing like yeah I didn't, wow I didn't even think about it till you said that wow yeah beyond the obvious you know comparison that you know Regatta's cast his own wife and his own kids in his movies and then sure, his, sure. Our, our time is about you know infidelity and whatnot yeah um I, I just think that like the way that the camera regards the characters in this film really Regatta's like I thought sure. yeah um, wow oh man. Uh, in a cool way and I also it felt a little Mike Lee to me at points too the scene Mike with the Lee, man on the wow. street where uh, the man is making the noise and it goes out to tell him to be quiet oh, that's true. Um, you know, that was a very naked moment oh yeah or happy-go-lucky the scene with the or, yeah well that happy-go-lucky I, that almost cancels out because ha- that scene in happy-go-lucky is right to some degree is kind of right out of it's like naked, Poppy just walks into naked at that point yeah seriously um um, but so it was cool to see, you know, different sort of uh, approaches come out of this film. And yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, putting down the Malik uh, connection. I think you're right. Oh, there. no, no. Yeah. Um, John, I wanted to ask you specifically because I wrote uh, in your review of it, uh, one thing that you mentioned was uh, that the movie kind of struggles between neorealism and surrealism in a way. And I was just kind of wondering if you could kind of talk about that and some of the scenes that you kind of felt had that struggle. Yeah, well, what uh, Marcus described as like daydreams or there's like these abstract interludes in between like very neorealism, I guess family drama, we would call it. I, I don't know. Yeah. And it's um, it, like it's an interesting clash between the two where like kind of while the daydreams were happening, I, I often felt the movie didn't need them. Like they would lose very little without them. Mm-hmm. But, but by the end, it, it sold me because just the way it comes together at the very end where it could be interpreted as maybe a fantasy although i'm not i don't think i actually believe that but i think all the daydreams make it not quite as black and white as something that was Absolutely. strictly neorealism would be saddled with yeah so it's like uh, the thing I, I i liked least about it at the end was like okay it was necessary like it, there was there's always a method to, to abel's madness is basically what it was do you think that this was such so autobiographical though that Ferrero felt he needed to add some whimsy to it a little bit just to kind of create some space between himself and the movie or so people didn't think of him as this Perhaps. horrible guy who murders somebody <laughs> in front of his wife when his daughter's in the other room yeah. i think he also has a little bit of uh like he tries to avoid the cliches. So if he's making an like an Italian neorealism movie, he's going to put surrealism in it just to just to be different, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he's never he's never going to do it like straight as the way you're supposed to do it. I almost feel like most of his endings have that surreal quality to them. Like even something like the funeral where, you know, it's Chris Penn walking in and killing everybody. Even, even we, shooting in the casket that, you know, his brother's already dead inside. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Poor dead Vincent Gallo. You definitely have this, this thought of he's better dead than he is uh, acting. Um, <laughs> you definitely have this thought of, um, is this really happening? Like, this is really how he's going to end the movie. Um, 
where he really just wants to blow up that narrative, you know, just, just annihilate everybody at the end of it. Um, it's something that's a little bit in all of his films, but um, uh, I still didn't see the end of this coming. And Marcus, was it too obvious to do a uh, side-by-side of Defoe in Last Temptation of Christ with the end of this movie? Well, of course, <laughs> I. you already know I have that in my draft, but it's out of, like, based on the trailer and other stuff, it was just kind of like, I'm not going to do it to spoil the movie, but other people are posting it. So I'm like, oh, geez, well, like that, like that's one thing where it's kind of like, let, I, that, that, that's one image where I wouldn't want to share just yet. You're, you're right. I do agree. Yeah, it's very Last Temptation of Christ, right down to just, there was that period of, of April Ferraris where he was constantly compared to Scorsese and in, in, in not the nicest of ways either. So it's like, as a knockout Scorsese, just because, like, you know, he made, like, King of New York and Funeral and Bad Lieutenant, and he worked with, like, previous, you know, Scorsese, Scorsese actors. So there's, like, so there's a couple of layers to, to that ending as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, commendable that you wouldn't want to spoil it. It reminds me of... Uh, uh, ow, I'm having a brain fart. Can't think of this actor's name. Oh, come oh. on. German actor. Very well known. He's in Bakaru. He's in Bakaru. Oh, Udo, oh, Udo Kier. Udo Kier. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Udo Kier. Yeah. Um, being in Bakaru, I felt was a spoiler, but then he ended up on you know all the the posters poster, yeah, yeah, and everything. No, I yeah. So I, see, I saw the posters before I saw the movies, so I wasn't surprised. Um, uh, I would say about this movie, um, just kind of to bring it back to you know Ferrara's movies being you know somewhat difficult to define. Uh, this is a movie where I feel like Ferrara doesn't even is admitting that he doesn't even know who he is. Um, the way that you know Thomas slash Tommaso has an identity crisis as this you know exile in Rome, and Defoe you know isn't even Italian in any way. And we see those uh, scenes where he's learning the language, which I don't know this. Um, uh, this might be a comparison you guys appreciate. That, that those scenes reminded me of Blue in the Face a lot. Nice, and yeah, that, you know wow. sort of Ferrara doing his you know improvisational stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think there's an identity crisis within Abel Ferrara because so much of his career he's been Abel Ferrara, like the lunatic that's on drugs, and now he's like a sober guy with a family, and it's like, can you still be Abel Ferrara as this new person? And I'm sure this he asks himself this like thousands of times every fucking day, you know, like can you still be Abel Ferrara, the guy that made Bad Lieutenant as a like a responsible father and a you know, and husband, like, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't think he knows either. Yeah. Can you be a recovering addict who's a family man and has a kid, you know? Um, and he's, and Ferrara is like a nut who's also insanely articulate in his art. You know, he, yeah. he met him on the street yeah. and they were like, this is Abel Ferrara. He makes movies, give him money to make a movie. And you talk to him for five minutes. You're like, no, I'm not going to give this guy money. Are you fucking crazy? <laughs> yep. Um, so that's a duality in him as well that I think, this is this though to me, even though he's had so many autobiographical type of films, this really is one that just like throws his arm up like, I don't know how to explain myself. You fucking do it. You know, like <laughs> I love that about this film. Yeah, um, that's great. And I'm probably the only one who watched it and watched the AA meetings and thought to myself, uh, oh, it's like the group therapy scenes in the gladiator. <laughs> the killer car movie he made <laughs> that's right oh yeah shit wow um, <laughs> oh, yeah. and also we gotta say defoe is so fucking good in those scenes at the aa meeting that that's yes yeah incredible like that's my favorite 
like if I had to pick out one scene, that's like, yeah. I, I loved his monologue in the first scene uh, so much. I immediately thought of like Jack Nicholson's monologue at the beginning of the King of Marvin Gardens, you know, like one of the great film monologues, you know, performed yeah. monologues. Hmm. I agree. He's fantastic in the whole movie. Yeah. Defoe, always take and, it for granted. And his hair is doing something interesting in this movie too, I noticed. He's got like a weird... Uh, I want to say it's a grungy look, but it, it's it's a very like walking around in your pajamas with your you know hair in total disarray sort of look in this movie yeah. uh, that I kind of appreciated. <laughs> Usually he's a more put together kind of guy. Well, he's plain um, able. You got to be a little disheveled. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm wondering too. Uh, what was interesting about the Q and A too is that um, in this movie I thought like this guy's such a dick. Why is he calling his daughter? the baby she's three years old she's not a baby like knock it off uh sure enough ferrero refers to his daughter as the baby like six times in the q a yeah um so that's just defoe doing ferrero so i guess it's not supposed to be something we hold against in the movie that's just a ferrero thing i do find it interesting that uh you know as you said in the q a that he's more collaborative but you know harvey keitel or matthew modine as the able ferrero stand in it was very clearly Abel, where with Abel and, and Willem, I find it more like an amalgamation of both of them. You know, just simply Willem plays actors most of the time instead of directors. And as simple as that is, it's like I feel like Willem's personality is more included in Abel for our movies than, than past actors were allowed to be. Yeah. yeah, I think you nailed it. I think that when I said that, you know, they feel interlinked now to me, like, you know, that, you know, Defoe is definitely Ferrara's guy. It, yeah. it, it's totally in a way that Keitel and uh, and and, er, and I, when you mentioned uh, never really inhabited that Ferrara space, you know, and obviously this one is even more so than you know 444. Um, but um, so he has the advantage of kind of actually li- be living within you know Ferrara's space and within his house and having his family. But uh, it's more than that. I agree. He's definitely there on the same wavelength. Uh, Abel guys, used to always deny that Harvey was playing him too. He would say like, uh, what, do you, "What do you think Harvey's studying me? Like Harvey barely knows my fucking name." You know? <laughs> uh, Abel Ferrari used to reject the notion that Harvey was even playing him, um, and he would he would say like, uh, "Like Harvey, what do you think Harvey's studying me? Like he barely even knows my fucking name." And so, you know, which is obviously bullshit. Harvey was playing him for sure. Yeah, no, without a doubt. But I'm wondering if Harvey would uh, immerse himself quite like Defoe does in Tommaso, you know? I think it would have been a very different take. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, well, Harvey, like, he's going to be Harvey, I Mm. think, more so than Willem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So do you guys know anything about Siberia, his next film? I mean, judging from the few clips, no, but judge... Oh, actually, well... That was, I remember that being the, the movie he was pushing hard for on um, Kickstarter a couple of years ago. Tommaso kind of came afterwards. I remember Siberia being the movie that like, he was really trying to push to get made. And from the few clips that I've seen of it on YouTube, it, it looks like it's still in the same like vein or, or look and style as Tommaso. Do you know that it stars Willem Dafoe as a character named Clint? who exiles himself to a cave where he confronts his dreams and memories like the script he's writing in Tommaso. Ah, I didn't, I didn't know that. He's writing Siberia in Tommaso, man. 
Wow, it's like that's kind of cool. I liked it. There's this uh, there's this rapper Serengeti, um, who will like he has a he has a series of albums called Dennehy that's loosely based on Brian Dennehy, but then like in one of his songs he'll make a reference to something that doesn't exist, but then he'll make a whole album out of that one thing that doesn't exist, and then it just becomes this whole like crazy thing. But anyway, yeah, it's just kind of that's kind I of love shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And here, I got this to you, for you too, Mr. Side by Side. Uh, it was just the Berlin Film Festival, right? Mm-hmm. They competed for what? What's the top prize at Berlin? Golden Bear. Golden Bear. Because there's the bear in the script that he's talking about. Oh, right. Yeah, shit. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, you know, Farrar was making a reference to hopefully winning the, um, the Berlin Film Festival. When right, right. Characters talking about confronting a bear but you know i'm going to decide to read into that (laughs) please you know much of that same vein john turturro and barton fink when he's on the typewriter apparently was writing romance and cigarettes which you know came out like 15 years later but that was the story he was telling at the time are you serious that's that's what he was claiming in 2005 when it was coming out yeah i've never heard that but that's uh that's another one we saw in Toronto years before it actually got released. Um, that's funny though, that you bring up Barton Fink because when I heard, when I realized that Siberia was the film that, you know, they were trying to make and then he made Tommaso on the side, it reminded me of how the Coens were having writer's block on Miller's Crossing. And that's how Barton Fink came out of it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of became their side movie to Miller's Crossing. <laughs> um, and that way I feel like Tommaso is definitely going to be better than Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> but uh well, i'm excited to see it though uh, obviously um yeah that trailer is so fucking insane like in a good way like she she's the character goes you ruined my life and all of a sudden there's like death metal happening like it's truly fucking insane yeah wow i, I haven't seen the preview yet I'm oh you yeah you have to see it um it makes me wonder if it's going to be like a continuation on the themes in tomaso since uh christina Chiarek, is that how you say her last name? His wife is playing the uh, a part, and so is his daughter, Anna. So mm-hmm. now I'm wondering how much is going to be more like a continuation. So before we uh, wrap up, let me just ask, because uh, Marcus, I know you've seen a bunch of these. I have seen none of the docs or the short films or the web series uh, or any of these small acting roles he's done for the last decade, because he's been super busy. I mean, it makes it seem like it's not super busy to say he's done four features, but he's also done all these on top of it. Uh, which of these do you think are worth highlighting? Which ones would you recommend? Mulberry Street's cool. I, I actually, I got to see Mulberry Street. And God bless Anthology Film Archives. I, I got to see that there too. Like again, when they did that like extensive series of like all his like unseen movies or whatever, I saw every single one. I was there the whole after work or on the weekend every single time. So um I, I enjoyed that a lot. He also is, yeah, as far as like acting roles, he's, he's like a mugger. In the early, you know, Safety brother movie, you know, Daddy Longlegs. Um, oh, was that the Safties? Daddy Longlegs? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That yeah. was, I'll, I'll be quiet. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I was going to say this before I like their movies. But um, yeah, his documentaries are, I mean, I know these, the other ones I saw don't fall into this time frame, but like, you know, Hotel Chelsea was really cool. Napoli, Napoli, Napoli. Was like, they're all, they're, they're interesting. I, I don't mean to insult. They're just, they seem like cool, like side projects. Um, I, I, I don't like to downplay them, but you know, they, they are what they are. They're cool. 
Yeah, Mulberry Street is on YouTube right now. So for okay, before, I didn't even know that. Oh, wow. Yeah, before it goes like for free. So before it like goes off, people should watch it because it's like it's basically a hang movie. It, I think right. it it makes sense in the context that uh, 444 was next because it's really about the changing of Mulberry Street and New York City as a whole, and uh, it's really good. Also, a lot of nostalgia for. Uh, uh, What's the the eighties movie? China Girl was it? China Girl, yeah. Which Abel uh, Ferrark like says is one of the favorite movies he's ever made. Like he 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 loves that fucking movie. I believe that. I definitely like, believe that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with you know shooting it on Mulberry Street and Little Italy with those guys, and yeah. it was like a good time for him. But I definitely recommend Mulberry Street. Chelsea on the Rocks is like Marcus is saying, kind of the same vein, and and, and it's like a good time. It's not essential but you know if you, if you like Abel Ferrara they're definitely worth checking out yep. excellent I gotta I gotta start checking them out because I'm way behind on those mm-hmm. um, but then I gotta go back and uh, rewatch a bunch of Ferrara that I was interested in the uh, pure cinema guys that brought up um, his commentary on the driller killer uh, which is one of the you know fabled the, the classic uh, commentaries of all time so I gotta go back and watch that one nice. um, guys thank you so much for talking um 65 years old uh, Abel Ferrara is right now how, how much longer do you think he's going to go how much uh, he's never really slowed down even though he's had you know uh, sort of moments where it seems like he disappeared how I mean do you think he's got another 20 years in him of filmmaking I don't know I don't know if he has that many years 20 in life. years yeah but we'll, we'll see I, I will say is he's someone who I've, I can say I've met him multiple times and like his energy level is not of a 65 year old but it's like who knows like who knows you know hearing your anecdote on wrong reel again i always forget that anecdote and then hear it again and i fall in love with it all over again it's like my favorite celebrity oh, story the, the, oh the first time i met him yeah oh it was awesome yeah i got conf- so i don't know for those who haven't heard i got i got confused with being part of his entourage the first time i met him it was it was at that program that i keep talking about anthology film archives he was like standing over by a bunch of people and someone who he was with could tell that I wanted to take a picture with him. And he was just like, hey, come on, come come over here. And he's like, Abel, this guy, he seems to be a fan of yours. He wants to take a picture. And Abel Ferrara is like looking through his pockets, like his coat pockets, his pants, but he's not paying me any attention. And then his friend is like, Abel, Abel, this guy wants to take a picture with you. And he's like, what? Oh, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. Oh, hey, uh, what are you, a filmmaker or something? I'm like, no, I just write about movies, but not really. He's like, oh, what film site? And then he's like, oh, let's take a picture. Like he just keeps cutting himself and myself off. So then we take a break from the first, it was Go-Go Tales, and the second movie in the double feature was Mary. So he came back to introduce Mary, and then it's like Matthew Modine's in the front row, like other people are like there, and he's, and Abel Ferrara comes in all energetic, and he's like, oh, we got Matthew here, we got, oh, this guy's here too, and he points at me. He's like, this guy's here too, all right. And then I was like, what? And then this woman sitting behind me taps me, she's like, how do you know Abel? Um, how, no, she said, how long have you known Abel? And I was like, I just met him like, <laughs> 30 minutes ago. I, I, I don't know. I, I just felt, I felt so included. He was really excited. Like, to just like, and it's also, if you've been to like either theater, but the upstairs anthology film archives, it, it's not a big theater. And, and the crowd, and it wasn't like a packed crowd. So it just kind of made me stand out more. And I just remember feeling really like cool, weird, embarrassed, awkward, you know, all in one. So. Oh, that's great um as for like how long he'll make movies i, I found an interview he did with collider and they actually they said 
please keep making movies. And Abel replies, I have it up. Quote, oh yeah, don't you worry about that kid. We'll keep rocking. Keep fucking rocking till the day we die. And then in parentheses, it says, at this point, Ferrara flung his arms into the air triumphantly and stumbled out of the room, a legend. And he's gonna, that's going to be it. He's going to make movies till the day he dies. Like, I have zero doubts about this. If there's, there's any one that I hope ends up you know, dropping dead when his time's up on a movie set, it's definitely <laughs> Abel Ferrara. <laughs> that's probably the way he wants to go. I wouldn't be surprised. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it was great to revisit these films. I'm really, again, I just have to say, I'm just amazed that this guy is still around, still doing films and still surprising us. I, I mean, Tom- if Tommaso isn't one of my favorite films of the year, then there, be, there better be some pretty amazing films coming up because I really did love it. I thought it was great. Um, but it was great too, just to see how it connects to these last uh, four films that he's made. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I just, I treasure the guy. I treasure him. Yeah, same same absolutely one of the greats and it feels like uh, there's momentum his way that he's he's finally starting to get his due you know and john i just want uh, if you wouldn't mind just letting everyone know what your uh, twitter handle is so they can uh, enjoy your fantastic twitter feed oh yeah, it's twitter uh j frankensteiner um yeah you can find me there and, i post uh, a lot of interviews and occasionally video clips and yeah, rare, like rare interview segments and cool video stuff. Yeah, all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, and some of the stuff that you put up about Ferrara has just made me fall in love with them all over again. I right. feel like it was a build up to this new movie to see some of the stuff that you shared and you know, kind of appreciate them all anew. Yeah, there's certain guys like that. It's hard to believe they're real. And like, you know, Friedkin is one of them for me. And, and Abel is like right up there. Like, how the fuck are these people real? You know, like in the best possible way. <laughs> absolutely um marcus i know you've got him to coming back on zebras coming up what else you got uh in the pipeline there well before then uh we have we got patrick horvath and dallas hallam on the show that was like a super oh, excellent. fun i feel like the energy is just through the roof uh, on, on that episode so yeah we i mean luckily not i don't know what the word is but the one positive thing scott and i have really been taking advantage of this quarantine time like we record multiple podcasts a week so we're just we have a bunch of stuff that we're sitting on and we're always watching movies. So yeah, so check out so on Twitter, you know, it's at Pinland underscore Empire. Uh, for the Zebras account, it's at Zebras Pod, and then I started another uh, Twitter account with a buddy of mine. It's at Hokuto underscore Empire, where we just pretty much do movie comparisons, focusing just on like heavy on the martial arts, but just like action movies in general. So um, yeah, I'm always posting, I, I have three Twitter accounts, so I'm always busy on there. I'm posting stuff on my site more, more, way more frequently on Pinland Empire. So check out that, pinlandempire.com. And um, yeah. When do you sleep, man? <laughs> uh, not, I mean, yeah, because I, I, I get into adult swim a lot now, now that I'm, I'm jobless. So I just kind of, I go to sleep around 2.30, wake up around 8.00 and then do it same thing every day kind of. that's that's the way to do it. yeah <laughs> uh thanks for listening everybody uh our next episode is going to be a, a book episode and we're going to be talking about the moat in god's eye written by larry niven and jerry uh pornell we're going to have uh with us joining us uh chemical engineer cajun chef beer brewer and world traveler isaac murray funderberg uh, because it's going to be a Father's oh, nice. Day special 
who's the father of Mr. Chris Funderburg. Uh, and this is one of his favorite books, which is why we're going to be talking about it. Uh, classic science fiction novel. So if you get a chance, pick it up and hear our thoughts on it here. Isaac Murray Funderburg's thoughts on it. They are going to be unique. Um, thanks so much, everybody. Have a great time. Thank you.